Christmas is just one week away, right? You just have to look at Nick Miller and you know that. You can see that Christmas, he doesn't normally dress like this, thankfully. Um, but no, no, Christmas is almost here, right? It's, it's practically here, for, which would, for some of you, you're like, oh no, right? Like, <laughs> I see all the things I need to do in less than one week, right? I've got to buy the gifts. I've got to, I've got to wrap the gifts. I've got to put the lights out. I've got, to, I've got to finish this stuff up at work and then we've got to travel somewhere. Then we've got to cook. And I'm like, Maybe you're just already getting stressed. But for most of you, hopefully, when you see Christmas right around the corner, you're getting excited. Even if you do have some of that stress, right? I think probably all of us have a little bit of that with the hustle and bustle of the season. There's still the excitement that Christmas is here. And, and, and I know when I think back to even growing up as a child and what Christmas looked like in my house, uh, it actually looked a little bit different than what it did in my wife Kristen's house. You see, with, with Kristen, she had, I think, more of a stereotypical experience. She would wake up early in the morning uh, on Christmas Day and would be really excited. would get up with her sister Meredith and they would be ready for Christmas Day. They would go downstairs and maybe the parents weren't up yet, but they would look at all the presents, right? maybe, maybe even trying to decide exactly what was there in those presents. And then they would wait until their parents were there and then they would just rip into the presents. That's, I think, pretty typical, right, of how most people just can't wait to get to the presents. But I, I was, it was a little different. I, uh, you know, mom would wake me up at, you know, early in the morning and be like, Daniel, it's Christmas. Come on, let's go open the presents. Let's eat. And I'm like, can I go back to sleep? Like that, that's really, I was like, that's the Christmas present that I would like, the gift of more sleep. And for some reason, I never got it. Never got it. She was like, nah, you got to get up. But then, of course, once I got going, I just was never given the gift of, you know, being an early person. But then you become an adult and you just have to, right? But in those Christmas days, as a child, I just never really wanted to get out of bed. That's really what I wanted was that Christmas gift. But there's really one gift, right? Maybe, maybe it is a present or maybe it is more sleep like for me. But there's one gift that every child, especially a young child, like it's the gift, Right? There's different lists every year right? of this is the hot new toy, like LOL Kids. That's really big right now. But that's not actually the main gift. That's not the gift that every child wants. You know what it is. It's a box. Right? That's what every kid wants. They want a box. Right? Because, I mean, even in our house, maybe Amazon comes, which is basically replaced uh, Christmas. Right? They just give you Christmas every single day. And Amazon comes, and what does James do? He wants to stand on the box. He wants to push the box around. He wants to do anything he can with the box. He could care less what's inside for the most part, but he wants that box. That's why Kristen and I just got him a box this year. That's it. No, she would kill me if we did that. Yeah, I am tempted. It would save a lot of money, but we will not do that. We will not do that. But that's what kids want, right? And when you think of Christmas, there's all sorts of things that do come to mind, but one of them is definitely little kids experiencing it. Maybe you're a parent and, and you have little kids and, and seeing their joy, when they do play with that box and not the toy you got. Or, or you know, seeing them go through the traditions that, that you grew up, right? Hearing these songs that, that we know. I mean, these songs, we, we pretty much know them by heart. We barely have to look at the lyrics. But for them to hear them or experience them for the first time or to, to watch that favorite movie that you like to during Christmas season. When we think of Christmas, one of the main things we do think of is, is kids and little kids experiencing it. I mean, that's why even in our favorite Christmas movies, maybe it's Cindy Lou Who or, or, or it's with the Christmas story, right? All these, it's around kids experiencing Christmas. And at the heart of that is not just that kids experience just the wonder and the lights and the glory of Christmas, but there's something inherent about the Christmas story about kids. And it's, I think, rooted in what we even saw two weeks ago when we began this Advent series. 
that in Genesis chapter 3, there's not just bad news that sin and even death has entered into the world, but it's that there is separation in this world too. That because of the fall of man, because sin has entered into this world, and because we continue to perpetuate that sin in us, that we are not just destined for separation eternally, but that we are separated from God even now without Christ. That what the Bible would describe us as is not children of God, but actually that we are followers of of the enemy, of Satan himself, that we are in fact orphans, spiritual orphans without God. That that's the bleak reality of the world, of the kingdom of darkness that we're in. But in the good news of Christmas, in the hope of Christmas, of why did Jesus really come? Why was he on mission? What we'll see in our big idea today is that Jesus is on mission to make you a child. And as well, we'll see a witness of God. That yes, we have this bleak reality that without Christ, we don't have hope. We can't, much like an orphan, we can't do things for ourselves. We don't have a parent to care for us. There's this, there's this lack of security. There's this, last, this lack of a future and a hope of what will be there. But friends, in the reality of the gospel, Jesus came as our older brother to bring us back to the Father so that we could be adopted into his family. And that's great news. We'll see that today in John chapter 1. And, and before we pray and jump into John 1, I want to go ahead and give you kind of a warning. John 1 is one of the most beautiful and complex passages in the entire Bible. It's kind of like a diamond. I I remember about nine years ago, I proposed to Kristen. And uh, spoiler alert, she said yes. Well, great. Um, but around that time, as we were trying to get ready and everything, I was looking at rings, right? Maybe, maybe some of you have done this before. And I was going around looking at rings, and I went to one of those fancier places, right, where you pick the diamond and the ring separately, and then they put it together. So I'm looking at the diamond, right, and I'm picking it, and I'm on a college budget, so it's like, okay, don't really have, can't really go too much with the carrots, right? And the color, we'll see how clear it'll be, but the cut, maybe I can do that, right? We got all these C's, right? We gotta, gotta line those up. So I'm looking at them, you know, when you first look at a diamond, especially as a dude, you're like, hey, that's shiny, right? That looks nice. That's about all I got. Maybe that's big or, <laughs> sorry, Kristen, not that big, right? That's, that's like all you got. But then as you start looking for a diamond, you start noticing all those things like clarity and cut and color, and I can't remember the other C, but there's another one. But you start looking at all these things, and you start even maybe looking at a microscope to look at the diamond even more, and you look at all the angles, and you see how light might refract off of it. The point is, the more that you look at it, the more intricate you see that it becomes. And John chapter 1 is just like that. It peels back like an onion. There are continuous layers. The more you look at it from every single angle, you'll see light in different ways that you've never seen it before. And so perhaps this is the first or the hundredth time that you've seen John chapter 1. But I want to encourage us to pray together and come with a posture of asking what is it that Jesus wants to show us about himself and ultimately us in John chapter 1. Let's pray and then dive in together. Father, every Sunday, every gathering that we have, we need your spirit to move. Your spirit gave us this wonderful word and in John chapter 1 we are reminded that I, a feeble man, cannot explain or show what's in John chapter 1 adequately. Father, I pray that you would empower me to show us Christ, that you would help us to see Christ in, in a new light, in a new angle than perhaps we have seen before, and that as we marvel at Jesus, 
Father, that we would look more like Jesus today. That those who are here that don't know Christ, that they would not reject Christ anymore, but instead that they would receive Christ, that they would repent and believe. Father, as we're praying for our missional partners and our Hold the Rope campaign over these three weeks, I want to pray for Beth in Southeast Asia. Father, our own, our covenant member that we sent out and that she is on the mission field there. Father, even today as they are holding missional gatherings around the Christmas season in order to meet their neighbors, those around us, around them and point them to the hope of Jesus just as we're doing literally right now. Father, I pray that they would see fruit. That those in Southeast Asia would come to know Jesus. That they too would receive Christ. That you would save the nations there in Southeast Asia and here in Newport News today. Would your spirit move? In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we're going to be in John chapter 1. And what we're going to see is that John chapter 1, it's been described by different pastors as, as a resume of sorts of Jesus. And so really, the first few verses, it's all around this theme of who is Jesus? And it's only then that we can then understand ultimately who we are and what we should do in light of that. So this question of who is Jesus? I remember when I was in college, I came back uh, home for Christmas. And my mom, maybe, maybe like your house or maybe like your house growing up, my mom really goes all out when it comes to Christmas. And everything's all ornate and fancy. She has this, uh, this one nativity set. And it's super fancy. It's this porcelain. It's kind of white, and it's kind of has white, excuse me, gold trim around everything. It's super fancy. And so, as a college student, I, I had seen this a million times, and I just I got a little bored. So what I did is I um, I made some brownies, and I decided to when my mom wasn't looking to take the little baby Jesus off of the manger, and I hid him. And so then I took a brownie and just kind of formed it in the shape that Jesus was, and I put that, I put that on the manger. And I was like, I'm just going to see how long this takes for mom to see. I fully assumed a few minutes, right? Because, again, it's like white, and then you see this brownie, like this little blob. I'm not very artistic. It was not a very good-looking uh, replacement for Jesus. But then... I'm thinking, you know, a couple minutes, a couple hours maybe, but it was like three days. And then I'm in my room, and I just hear, like, my mom yell, Daniel! And I'm like, oh, she found it. And so I come in there, and I'm like, what's going on, Mom? And, uh, yeah, she found me out. Anyway, what I had done is I had replaced Jesus right into brownie Jesus. He was delicious, but not, not quite as good. And so, but here with brownie Jesus, the point is this. Like, we do this all the time. Like, we know who Jesus is, we hear the stories, we read in Scripture what we're going to read, but the reality is we actually change Jesus into who we want to be. And so the question that John is going to start with in the book of John is, who is Jesus? And there are all sorts of cultural ways that we like to shape Jesus. We'll see them, and it's, it's all the ways that people reject Jesus for. Perhaps that they, they think, you know what, Jesus is just, you know, Jesus is just my friend. He's just a guy I want to hang out with, or Jesus is just a good teacher, or Jesus was just a good man, or, or whatever it might be. Or Jesus, you know what, he's the one that makes me happy. Jesus is the one that gives me what I need. But friends, John starts off, and he tells you exactly who Jesus is. So instead of us coming with the text with our notions of who might God be, who might Jesus be, let's look at John chapter 1. Let's see who Jesus is. We'll see first that he was the Word. It tells us this, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Now stop there. Remember, we're looking at this diamond, trying to look at all the different angles. When it says the phrase, in the beginning, what does your mind go back to? Where does it go back? 
as if there was a, this was a hyperlink to the Bible. But you go to Genesis chapter 1, right? That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know that passage. It's super famous. So here, John is trying to take you back to the beginning of creation itself. And what is it that was in the beginning? He says, it was the Word. Well, that's kind of weird. The Word. What is he getting at here? You see, the Jews and the Greeks, the, Gre- the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, both would understand this Word in different ways. And he's trying to communicate that this Word is God and that God came. You see, in the Bible, the Word is really this declaration of the will of God. How do we know that? Well, again, in Genesis chapter 1, how did God create everything? It says, he spoke. That's it. It was just his words. And he said, let there be light, and so on and so forth. That it was through his word, but even throughout scripture, that it is by his word that we are saved. That it is by his word that his will is done. The Hebrews, they understood the word to be this, this movement of the will of God. But then the Greeks, they viewed the word as something different. In their philosophy, this word in Greek is logos. We know this word, like biology, right? That suffix there of, of biology, of uh, biologos, right? The study of life. Or theology, the study of God. You could have all these different things. You, you know all these ologies. So it's this word, logos, is words about, or thoughts about, or sayings about. But it also means something different. It's not just word, but it's also this unifying presence. It's this theory where the the Greeks, the Gentiles, were trying to understand how does the world fit together? How does everything bridge with one thing together? How are we even here? And here, John tells us to the Hebrews, to the Greeks, you want to know what it is? It's the word. So what is this word? What, What is he even talking about? He's talking to everyone, and he says, the word was with God. Okay, so he's there from all time, and he's with God. But then it tells us something maybe surprising, that the Word was God. Now, this is different than what our Mormon or our Jehovah's Witnesses friends might tell us, that the Word was a God or the Word was like a God. Now, what does Scripture tell us? It tells us that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And he tells us, verse 2, that he was in the beginning with God. So in verse 2, what do we begin to see? It's that this word is not just this ambiguous thing of, well, what is that? No, it's a he. It's a person. It's, it's an actual person. And what do we know about this person from verse 1? That this person was with God from the very beginning. And not just that he was with God, but that he is God. Here, John is already laying the foundations for what we understand to be the doctrine of the Trinity that we understand that our God is three in one. That yes, that he is one in essence and in unity, but he is Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct, yet one in, in essence. And so here, John is already laying the foundations of who is Jesus. Jesus is God, and that he has always been God. Verse 3, it even continues. He says, it's not just that Jesus is God, that he's always been God, but verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's saying everything, everything, everything was created by Jesus. He says, you want to know who is the actor of the creation when God said, let there be light? Who's the one that screwed in the light bulb? It was Jesus. 
Who was the one that created the world? It was Jesus. Who was the one who created the frost on your, glass, on, on your car glass this morning? It was Jesus. Who was the one who formed Adam and created him? Who was the one walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in, in Genesis 3? It was Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the creator. He is the one over all things, and that will have great implications later in this passage. We'll see. But it wasn't just that he's God and that he's always been God and that he's the creator God. But no, verse 4, it says, and in him was life. Was life. You see, he doesn't just form Adam. But it is out of Jesus' lungs that breath is given to Adam. It's out of Jesus' hand that your heart is still beating. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of life. Jesus is over all things, and he always has been and always will be. That's who Jesus is. And he in him was the life, was the light of men. Just as we saw last week in in Isaiah chapter 9, that we are in the kingdom of darkness. That because of our sin in Genesis chapter 3, because the fall of man that we continue, that there's darkness around us. That's why there's suffering. That's why there's death. That's why there's hardship. That's why there's emotional toil. It's because we're in the, the, the kingdom of darkness. But as we saw last week in Isaiah 9, there's hope because the virgin-born son came. The king of, the, of light, light himself came. Friends, Jesus is God. He has always been God. He is the creator. He is the giver of life, and he is the giver of light. And when we hear this, when we understand this, friends, that changes everything. That changes the core of our identity of who we are and how we live. But first, we have to hear it. That's what ultimately John is going to tell us. He tells us that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. How does this light shine? It shines through witnesses. It shines through people giving this light. Verse 6, John says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John's not talking about himself in third person. That would be a little weird. What he's doing here is he's talking about John the Baptist. You remember the guy? Real weird guy, dressed weird, was in, the, like, was in the desert, ate bugs and stuff like that. He wasn't just weird, but he also was this red carpet of sorts for Jesus. He knew that the Messiah was coming, and his role was to point people ultimately to Jesus and call them to repent and to believe. And it said he was sent from God. He, John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Why? That all might believe through him. I I don't know when you first heard the good news of Jesus. Who it was that told you that Jesus came. That Jesus died in your place. But friends, that person came because they were a witness of what Jesus had done in them. And that they weren't simply a witness... But notice, what did John do? Was he just a witness? No, he was bearing witness. He was sharing testimony of what Jesus had done in him. And it didn't just stop with John the Baptist. John the Baptist told some people, and they repented and believed. And then those people told some people, and they repented and believed. And so on and so forth, where now, at the end of 2022, in Newport News, Virginia, we're talking about Jesus. It's because people like John actually witnessed this real Jesus. And he absolutely changed who they were and how they lived. And so the question is, then how does he change who we are? What is it that he does in us and how, who is it that he makes us? Well, that's what John gets at next. 
he says, he was not the light, John, but no, he bore witness. He came to bear witness about the light, about Jesus. The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was coming. This word was going to become flesh, we'll see. You see, he was in the world. This is talking about the light. This is talking about the word. Ultimately, we know it's talking about Jesus. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. He created everything. Yet the world didn't know him. Jesus came in the most humble of ways. You would expect the king of kings to come down from heaven, maybe on this chariot of fire, to be born in the the greatest of cities, to have this royal announcement. But how did Jesus come? Jesus came humbly as a baby. As a baby. What can a baby do other than maybe looking cute? But nothing. And that's how Jesus came. And Jesus came in the most humble of places. In Galilee, of Nazareth. No one lives there. What, what good things can come out of Nazareth, people would say. But that's where Jesus was born. And friends, Jesus, it's not like, well, maybe he grew up and he became this strong, good-looking man. Isaiah tells us that Jesus was not much to look at. He wasn't that impressive. That the world missed him. That they were expecting Jesus to look in a very specific way. To talk in a very specific way. To to roll out certain and specific things. To push back Rome and ultimately overtake the government. But Jesus came humbly. And lived humbly. And ultimately died humbly. They did not know him. He came to his own, verse 11, and his own people didn't receive him. You see, Jesus, he came to the Jewish people, but not just those. As well, Gentiles would see Jesus, and ultimately people, they didn't receive him. They rejected him. They didn't receive him, rather they rejected Jesus. And I know, for me, like when I read this, like my first reaction is to say, how could they see Jesus and not receive him? Like how could you see this guy walking on water and not say, Well, I clearly can't do that. That must be God. Or you know what? He takes just a Lunchable and feeds 5,000 people. How could this not be God? This is so other than me. How can this guy come in and read Scripture that is clearly prophesying about the Messiah and say, yep, that's me, and say, hmm, nah, I'm going to reject him. But you know what? Though we are not in the presence of Jesus in the way that they were, Don't we reject Jesus every day? Whether it's in subtle or loud ways. Whether it's implicit or explicitly. Friends, we're we're tempted to reject Jesus by, by really forming Him into who we want Him to be. Rather than actually worshiping the Jesus that the Bible presents. You know, for some, they'll reject Jesus because, Jesus, I mean, you're, you're just too holy. Like, really, you're just an eternal buzzkill. You're telling me I have to repent? Like, I can't just believe in you and say, yeah, I like you, Jesus. Like, I have to actually give things up. I have to actually stop sinning. No, nah, I'd rather, I'd rather keep, keep looking at those things. I'd rather keep uh, sleeping around with people. I'd rather, you know, cheat on my taxes. I'd rather just get what I no- need done and, and just move on. Or, or maybe, maybe you reject Jesus because he doesn't look like you want. Maybe ultimately because you know, Jesus even calls us to, to, to be a generous people holistically. That we would give our time and our talent, our treasure, that we would give holistically. You say, Jesus, I, I really don't want you to touch my wallet, so I don't think I will worship you. 
Or, or we, we reject Jesus because, you know, Jesus tells us we should care for the poor, that we should do justice. And that sounds pretty liberal, doesn't it? I don't think I should follow Jesus. That, that kind of sounds like a Jesus I don't want to be around. Or maybe we reject Jesus because he hangs out with sinners. Are you kidding me? We can't hang around with sinners. We, can, we have to separate from them. We, we can't be around them. They, they'll, they'll make us unholy. Friends, there's all sorts of reasons that we reject Jesus. And I think the simplest goes back to the first example I gave you. That we reject Jesus just as our parents did, Adam and Eve in the garden. Where we are given this opportunity, this temptation from the enemy. And he says, don't you want to be king? Don't you want to order your life? And in those moments, we have a choice. Will we reject Jesus or will we receive Jesus? Will we turn away from Jesus or will we ultimately continue to worship him? It comes down to a question of who is your king? Is it yourself or is it Jesus? And what we see is this pattern in Scripture that when Jesus came, his creation, his people, they rejected him. And that temptation is still there. That so many reject Jesus. Even many that, that gather on Sundays every week, whether it's in our churches or throughout the country, throughout the world, that we can even be around other believers, that we can say the right things, but ultimately be rejecting Jesus. And that's a terrifying thing. In Matthew chapter 7, what does Jesus say? That many will say, Lord, Lord, have I not done all these things? And say, department for me, I, I never even knew you. Friends, many reject Jesus. And so the question is, well, then what does it look like to even receive Jesus? And that's what John tells us next. He says that many, his own people, did not. And even many today don't receive him. But to all, verse 12, who did receive him. And he qualifies. What does he mean by receiving Jesus? Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. You know, in our culture, like in our subculture of Christianity... People use the word and the term to receive Jesus all the time, right? Like you've probably heard that, right? Anybody here like, oh, you need to receive Jesus. But again, the question is like, what does that really mean to receive Jesus? Is it kind of like a little kid receiving a gift? Like, well, just give it to me. That sounds good. Thanks, Jesus. Or is it perhaps something different? Here, John tells us that it's those who believe in his name. And even in our culture, the question is, well, what does it really mean to believe in his name? Is it just to believe in something like we might believe in a certain someone in this season? <laughs> like, is it to just believe and hope that one day the, the Carolina Panthers won't be a horrible football team? Is that what it means to believe? I think more so, it's actually what theologian uh, Wayne Grudem describes, that belief, true saving faith, true genuine belief is a two-sided coin. That we can't ultimately believe in something until we turn away from something else. That when we are following one way, the kingdom of darkness, sin, that we can't truly believe in Christ until we repent, until we turn, have this changing of mind. And as we repent, we are then trusting in Jesus. It's this concept of turning and trusting. That it's this one movement of faith, this gift of God. That we repent and believe. He tells us that those who repent of the gospel, excuse me, repent of their sin and trust in the gospel, that they 
become. They have the right to become the children of God. Now that is astounding. Like that is life-changing right there. And why? It's because of what we started with in the very beginning. That in Genesis chapter 3, what did we see? That again, it doesn't just bring us death and doesn't bring sin into the world. It's not just suffering, but it also brings us separation. It's that we are now not with God. We are no longer children of God, but rather instead, we are following our father Satan. That's what the Bible tells us. But here, Jesus says, I'm going to do something radically different. That I'm going to pull off a miracle. That I, for anyone who receives me, repents and believes the gospel, they will be brought into my family. That why is Jesus, why did he come? What is Jesus on mission to do? It's to rescue his family. It's to bring you into his family. And he does this, ultimately, by God the Father adopting you into his family. And when that happens, friends, you are given the right to become children of God. Meaning that everything that a child of the king has access to, you are now given those rights. You can now be with them. That's why theologians will describe it this way. Imagine that the President of the United States was to come in here and you decided to run at him, even if you're just thrilled. What's going to happen to you? (laughs) You're going to be taken down in some way. Whether you're shot or tackled or something, you will be taken down. But imagine, especially like in other seasons, we've had like a younger, maybe 40, 50-year-old president, that they have a child or a grandchild, a great-grandchild that runs towards them. What's going to happen to them? They're going to be welcomed and scooped up right into the arms of the most powerful person in our country. Why? Because they're not just some person. They're their family. And friends, for those who receive Christ, who see who Jesus truly is, He is God. He is the King. He always has been. He is the Creator. He is the giver of life and of light. Friends, that we are welcomed with arms of Christ. That our Father has adopted us into His family. And that we inherit everything that is Jesus's. And what is Jesus's? It's everything. He created the world. And so now He gives you everything. We have access to God the Father. And He's never leaving us. Now that's a gift that we can want. That's a gift that we can desire. And friends, this is why, as a church why we love children so much like why did we do a parent commissioning today it's because of some of the reasons i mentioned earlier genuinely that we are called to disciple our children and we are called to partner with each other but it's what we started with it's in the book of psalms that children are a gift from the lord and that in this that we are able to see the gospel and the love of god that he has for us so friends we love and partner with with parents Because we are continuing this gospel work. We are picturing the gospel to the world of how our Father is loving us. But then as well, like why is during our Hold the Rope campaign, are we partnering with uh, the, the Pregnancy Care Center? It's because Christians have always been on the front line of caring for those that can't care for themselves. Those that are most neglected, those that are most vulnerable, children. Friends, we love and pursue after the unborn. We love and pursue after the orphan. 
Because this is what our God does for us. That as we love the unborn, as we adopt and support those that do, that we are picturing the gospel to the world. That just as God our Father adopts us, the friends that we love and pursue after the unborn too. But in this reality that those who receive Jesus are given the right to become children of God, it does leave a question of how is this possible? And what is it ultimately that we are repenting from and believing in? And that's where John takes us in verse 14. He says, first in verse 13 though, who were born, these children of God, they were born not of, uh, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. He says, how is this happening? It's not by anything you can do. It's not by you willing it enough. It's not by you trying enough. It's not because you were already part of the family. It's not because you have a Christian in your family. It's not because you went to the right church or you said some prayer or you gave enough money. It's not by anything that you did, but it's of God. And how is it of God? Verse 14. And the Word... That word who has been there from the beginning. That word who is a person. That word who was with God and who is God is the God of the Hebrews and the Greeks. The word, he became flesh. He's describing the incarnation. The putting on and the becoming of flesh of Jesus. In the word, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. You see, this word dwelt is actually trying to hyperlink us back to the Old Testament yet again. Here John is using the word for tabernacle. Quite literally, he says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle in the Old Testament is is there in the first five books of the Bible. Really, Exodus through Deuteronomy, you see it. That there, this tabernacle, is really just a really fancy tent. And in this tent... God himself was dwelling. It was the presence of God being, being manifested there. And why was he in this tent? It's because the people of God were in tents, right? They were for 40 years wandering through the desert, trying to find their promised land. And God himself was there with his people, just as they were there living in tents that apparently God was too. Now, this was a really fancy tent, probably about millions of dollars if you look at the descriptions of how it was made. And in it, it was, it was all of these inner courts that as you got further and further in, it was more and more exclusivity that there in the very presence of God and who could be there and how they could be there and how often they could be there. But in this really hot spot of God's presence was the tabernacle. It was this wonderful gift. We ultimately then see it then in the temple as they build this permanent structure, right? The Israelites, once they're in their promised land and they, they conquer their enemies, they build this glorious temple. And there was the presence of God. But what does it tell us about Jesus? Who is this word? He's the one who put on flesh. He became man. And he tabernacled among us. Meaning that he is not just this tent or this temple, this permanent structure that can be torn down. But that Jesus is this living and breathing and walking around and spending time with you, presence of God. That John is saying that the, that the presence of God is not just in this structure in one place that only certain people at certain times can be around. But that Jesus is the one who's sharing a meal with you. Jesus is the one who's holding your hand when you're crying. Jesus is the one when your daughter dies and he's there with you. 
Friends, Jesus is the one who is dwelling among you. And that's who our God is. Our God has always been God. And He is the creator of all things. And He is life. And He is light. And He is the one who came in the dirt of this world. In the sin, in the destruction, in the death that is all around us. And He says, I'm going to be right there with you. And I'm going to tabernacle with my presence everywhere I go. Because I am God Himself. And he tells us that he, as he dwells among us, that we see his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father. That God the Father, that this is his son. This is his only begotten son, as we see in John chapter 3. And who is Jesus? We've seen he's God. That he's always been God. That he is the creator. That he is life. That he is light. That he is the one who tabernacled among us. And he is full of grace and truth. This Jesus, He comes with grace. Meaning that He knows everything about you. He knows all of the sin. He knows all the ways that you and I are tempted to and fall to rejecting Him. But He comes with marvelous and glorious grace. He comes with forgiveness. And He comes with the gift of being brought into the family of God. The gift of life. The gift of light. But he's also full of truth. The truth that he is the only way. The truth that he is this God that John has been describing. That he is God's only son. And friends, he comes with the truth and the reality that Jesus, he didn't ultimately just come as a baby, become a man. But that Jesus, he ultimately died. That Jesus, in his presence, he came to be with us. So he could live the perfect life that we don't. Being the perfect sinless sacrifice that we need. But then dying the death on the cross that we deserve. And in his death and his burial and then his resurrection. Yes, that he walked out of the grave. Friends, he proves that anyone who repents and believes the gospel. Is given life, is given forgiveness, is given freedom. And is given the right to become a child of God. Friends, this is this Jesus who has always been God, who is the Creator, who is light, who is life, who is dwelling, uh, who dwelled among us, and who is full of grace and truth. And He is the one that we are called to believe in, to turn from our sin and to believe the gospel. And as He does that, He gives us the right to become children of God. But as children of God, how then do we live? What does that change about us other than our identity, other than that we are with and under the king and have access to him? Friends, just like John the Baptist, who was a witness and who bears witness, we become witnesses of this king as well. That's what we see, in fact, in Acts chapter 1, that as the disciples, those who had repented and believed, they were following Jesus. They're waiting on the Spirit, the promised one to come. And what does Jesus say? His last words before ascending to heaven. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right next to you. In Judea, just a little further away. In Samaria, the the, the nations, and to the ends of the earth. He says, those who are the children of God, they are given the Spirit of God. The moment of salvation. And when they do, He's not leaving. 
He will always seal you with this wonderful gift of the Spirit, the very presence of God. That the presence of God is not some tent. The presence of God is not in some temple. And it's not just when Jesus walked on the earth 2,000 years ago. But now the presence of God is now dwelling in you. That you are now described as God's tabernacle, God's temple, because God is dwelling in you through His Spirit. That's why you will receive power. That's why, believers, you have power. This power of the Gospel. And we are called to be witnesses and to bear witness. And so how do you know if you truly are a child of God? It's as if you, it's if you are actually following that God and actually bearing witness about Him. This witnessing thing, this giving testimony of what Jesus has done to us is not an optional thing. It's not a super Christian thing. It's not a when I get around to it thing. It's not when it's convenient for me thing. No, this is definitional to those who are children of God. That if you have received Christ, that you will bear witness of Christ. And as we bear witness to Christ, friends, we take this gospel forward. And we point them to Jesus. We point them to the one who has died in our place. That we were hopeless. That we were orphans without hope. But that Jesus came and rescued us. And God the Father has now adopted us into our family. That we pursue after our children. That includes the children that you might have in your family. That includes Catalyst Kids in our church. That we pursue after them. Because there's a mission field right in this church building every single Sunday morning. Right down that hall. That we pursue after them. And that we're not okay with just playing with them or giving them goldfish. But that we want to give them the gospel of Jesus. But friends, that we don't just pursue after children, that we pursue after the college. That we are here strategically, right next to one of the hot pockets of the transient culture of our, uh, of our city, to be able to pursue after these college students. That we would continue to take the gospel forward, continue to witness. But not just children, not just the college, but the community around us, the city. Your neighbors, those that you live next to, those that you work next to, that we would continue to be witnesses to those around us and to the nations. Friends, one of the practical ways that we can do this is even taking that card that I told you about earlier and inviting someone. Inviting them to hear the good news of Jesus next Friday. Friends, that we would go out taking this gospel forward as children of God and as His witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the wonderful gift that You have given us because of Jesus' work in our place. That we have given, been given the right to become children of God. I pray for those today that are rejecting Christ. That have continued to reject Christ. That perhaps on the outside maybe even look like they're following Christ. They've said the right things. They've done the right things. They look the right way. But Father, that they're ultimately rejecting the King. I pray that through your Spirit, you would bring conviction. That even now, that they would truly, biblically receive Christ. That they would repent and believe his gospel. Repent of their sin and believe that Jesus came and became flesh and dwelled among us and died in our place. And that because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that they can have life, salvation. That they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. I pray that you would do that here and in Southeast Asia, just as we prayed earlier. In Jesus' name. Amen.